0: Good morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, our final message in our Who Does Jesus Say I Am series. And what we'll see this morning as we look at Luke chapter 11 is that Jesus says, I am heard. Now about seven years ago, this past July, my wife and I welcomed our first addition to our family. Our son, Jax, was born seven years ago. And if you didn't know this, there's no instruction manual for children. Period. Right. the, The amount that I didn't know was overwhelming and it became even more so when this 90 year old man rolled a wheelchair into the hospital room after three days and said, get in, Janelle, put your son on your lap and it's time for you to leave. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you don't know who I am. Why are you trusting me with the life of a child? one. Two, why are you wheeling my wife out in a wheelchair? She can walk, I think. I've never had a baby. I don't know. So she gets wheeled out, and there's this moment when she's coming around the corner and going down a decline in the parking garage. I'm watching this old man, and I'm thinking, please, Lord Jesus, don't let him lose his grip on this wheelchair. It will be certain impending doom if he does. And he doesn't. Praise Jesus. We get Janelle in the car, Jack's in the car, and we drive 20 miles an hour back home because that's the max speed you can drive with a newborn. I didn't know that. That's not actually a rule, but it should be. And we get home and we unload jacks. We get Janelle out of the car and day one happens, night one happens. And it's just like smooth sailing. Day two, night two, smooth sailing. And in my mind, I'm rehearsing all of these warnings that people had given me about children. You'll never have a sleep filled night again. Well, so far so good. They'll be really gassy, that's true. Um, They could be sick, meh, maybe, but it just seemed like every single night I would lay my head on the pillow and wake up eight hours later. And I thought to myself, has the Lord blessed us with a perfect firstborn? I know he's a sinner, but maybe he's not as big, no, he's still as big of a sinner as all of us, but what is happening in this moment, this happened for about 22 months, almost two years. And there came a moment in Janelle and I's uh, marriage where we're having a conversation with some friends and I just recount to them this beautiful story. Like we bring our son home from the hospital and it is so great and he's perfect. I've never woken up once in the middle of the night to ever tend to him. He eats right before he goes to bed. He goes to bed and he wakes up and he's not even dirty. He's still dry. It's amazing. (laughs) And my wife gives me this look and maybe you've had the look that i've had it's the look that sweetheart you're an idiot <laughs> and in that moment she goes do you realize jacks wakes up about three to five times every night nope I had no idea that was a thing do you- do you understand that I change his diaper at least twice in the night so that when he wakes up, he's dry? No, no, never experienced that or been a part of that with you, sweetheart. And, and all throughout these almost two years, as being the awesome father that I am, I slept through every moment that my son cried. Every single one. There, there was not a single moment where I was worried enough to wake up. Now my wife, bless her heart, she was up each and every time. I didn't understand why she was so tired those first two years. I was, I was grasping to figure that out. This morning as we look at Luke chapter 11, what we'll see is we will see a wonderful, loving, caring father. Who, unlike me, hears the cries of his children. And not just hears them, desires for them to cry out constantly. And this morning, as you sit here and as we open up Luke chapter 11, there's some of you that when you hear the words, gracious and caring father, your mind immediately flees from the thought of God. There's students here this morning that are starting school that the last thing on their mind is a gracious and caring father when they look at an upcoming semester. There's men and women that are here this morning that are harboring inner burdens and sins and they can't understand how God could ever be gracious or loving or kind to them. There's college students and high school students that are here this morning that are hearing the words that God is a gracious, loving father who desires for you to call out to him. And the last thing you would ever think about doing is exalting your voice to a God that cares for you. So my hope and my prayer as we open up Luke chapter 11 is that you would see that God is a gracious and good God who desires for us to cry out to him in prayer, to persistently pursue him in prayer, and to focus our hearts and our minds on his goodness and care for us as our heavenly father. So I hope you've made your way to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse one. to those who ask him. Let's pray. Lord, our gracious God, we echo the prayers of the disciples. We ask that you would teach us to pray this morning, that you would reshape how we pray by the power of your word. So Father, we we give you this time and ask that you would move. Lord, for your word is the only thing that creates change. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Here in verse chapter 1, Luke jumps in and gives us a glimpse into the life of Jesus that he gives us all throughout the gospel. We see Jesus about to teach on prayer, showing us how he prays. Notice what it says. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. There's this feeling of eager expectation, almost like the disciples are waiting on the cusp of where Jesus is praying and just waiting. They're just jumping back and forth, about to hit that finish line or that start line. They're just ready to go after Jesus. They're looking at him. Is he done yet? Did he fall asleep? I fall asleep when I prayed. Did he? No, he's still moving. Great. He's still praying. Okay, he's done. Let's shoot straight in and ask him one of the most important questions Any disciple can ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And as Jesus is about to unfold in the next verses, his teaching on prayer, there's something important that we need to understand before we jump in, is that Jesus isn't teaching the multitudes. Jesus isn't teaching the crowds. Jesus is teaching his disciples. And disciples are different than the multitudes. Disciples are different than the crowds. Disciples follow Jesus. Disciples have acknowledged their own sinfulness and their brokenness apart from Jesus. Disciples have confessed their sin and repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Christ alone Disciples have counted the cost. They have weighed and considered what following Jesus as Lord and Savior in every aspect of their lives would look like. And disciples have concluded that a life following Jesus is of far more worth than a life fleeing from him. We're about to see a conversation between disciples and the one they follow. It's important for us to understand right out of the gate a prerequisite, to this conversation as a relationship with Jesus. So before we even jump into our text this morning, let me put before you the most important question you could ever ask. It's not, Lord, teach us to pray without having a relationship with Jesus. It's first, Lord, I repent of my sins. I place my faith and trust in Christ alone. Have you become a disciple of Jesus? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus in every facet of your life and come to the conclusion that you would rather live a life following him than fleeing from him? If not, oh, that you would place your faith and trust in Christ this morning. Oh, that you would repent of your sins and come to know Christ. Don't try to pray as a disciple if you aren't a disciple. First, seek the Lord's face in salvation. So Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and we see that we are heard first when my prayer is God-centered. Notice what Jesus declares in verses 2-4. through four. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. I love Jesus' assumption. Jesus' assumption is that disciples will pray. Notice Jesus says, when you pray, literally whenever, at every moment, at every capacity, in any situation and circumstance, when you pray, this is how you should pray. Jesus doesn't declare to us, if you pray. He doesn't declare to us that when the sun is shining and your shoes are good, roses are red, and when violets are blue, that's the time that you should pray too. That's not what Jesus is declaring to us here in Luke chapter 11. He's saying any moment, at every time, as a disciple, when you pray, pray like this. And he shows us first that prayers must be God-centered. And the first thing we see is that God-centered prayers begin with God's holiness. Notice what he says, Father, hallowed be your name. And just a quick poll. How many of you have used that word hallowed this week in normal conversation? (laughs) Nobody? Praise Jesus, okay? Hallowed is an old word that describes and gives exaltation to God's character. Our first component, our first activity in prayer isn't that of getting something for ourselves, our first activity in prayer is ascribing and giving something to God. It's declaring His holiness, His set-apartness, who He is. Jesus teaching is teaching that I should begin my times of prayer, that you should begin your times of prayer by exalting and setting apart, sanctifying God's name as holy. And as we do, a crazy thing happens. As we reorient and set our minds on God's holiness first and not on the pressing of my needs, what happens is my frame is shifted and how I pray is changed. No longer are my needs pressing in and overwhelming me because I focus my mind on a holy God that cares more about my needs, more about the salvation of my family, more about the cares that are happening in my marriage, more about my children and work situation than I do. He cares more about what's happening in this world than I ever could. And the reality is, is that if I don't begin my time praying with the Lord by focusing on His holiness, then I could quickly assume that God can't handle the burdens of my heart. I must begin my times of prayer, hallowing his name, setting apart his name, exalting him in his holiness. So let me ask you, as you pray, how do you begin? Do you begin and pause to recognize the name that you are about to invoke? The name of the God of the universe, who not only created everything, but sustains it with the power of his word you begin your times focusing in on God's holiness? Next, we see that God-centered prayers are not just focused on his holiness, but are focused on his kingdom. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Disciples recognize and realize there is a greater kingdom that they're living for. And a disciple is a citizen of that kingdom here and now. So if there's a greater kingdom that we're pursuing, if there's something bigger, something greater in this life than just what's presently in front of us, do we recognize and realize that in our prayers, but more than that, do we recognize and realize this greater kingdom throughout our day-to-day lives? If there's a greater kingdom, and if disciples are citizens of that kingdom, and if the kingdom we're currently in isn't that kingdom... And that means you and I are ambassadors for a greater kingdom. This past Tuesday, I sat at my home. We had our college small group meets every Tuesday, 7 p.m., shameless plug. And um, as we sat in a circle with these college students, I began to realize that in the next seven to 10 days, they would interact and be in different situations and scenarios that I could never be. That they were gonna be activated and sent to IUSB and Notre Dame and St. Mary's that they were going to leave my home and go back to their communities, to their workplaces, and have conversations that I could never have. And the thought overwhelmed me that they are ambassadors for God's kingdom in areas that I could never be. And it overwhelmed me. And the reality is, is that that's not just true for my small group. That's true for you if you're a disciple of Jesus. That God hasn't, hasn't placed you anywhere on accident. That you have been put into the job you have, into the home you have, into the neighborhood you have. You have the family you have. You, you have the interactions that you have on purpose. And that as an ambassador of God's kingdom, our prayers should be focused on His holiness and desiring to see His kingdom come here and now And we are tasked with the mission and the message to proclaim. So as you pray, are you focused on his holiness and are you desiring his kingdom? The third component we see of God-centered prayers is simply this, is that God-centered prayers rely on his provision. Notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. Giving us the model prayer, he tells us, give us each day our daily bread. Not bread for tomorrow. Not old stale bread from yesterday. Lord, I must rely on your provision physically today. Help me today. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Disciples, as they pray, recognize and realize that we must rely on his provision for daily seeking forgiveness for the sins that we are so apt to commit. We remind ourselves of the gospel each and every day, our need to repent first and foremost and come to the feet of Jesus. Lord, forgive us our sins. But not only that, disciples, since we've been forgiven so much, are then called to extend that grace and forgiveness to those that have wronged us. Did you see it? Help us to forgive those that have been indebted to us. How much easier would the Lord's Prayer be if Jesus kind of threw something in there like you could harbor bitterness? Wouldn't that be way easier? Like, and those that hurt you real bad, just hold it against them. That'd be way easier to pray. He doesn't do that because he's way smarter than we are. He tells us, you've been forgiven so much. Now take that forgiveness and understand that you too should extend and offer that same forgiveness to those that have been indebted to you. And the last thing that he tells us and we must rely on his provision for is that we be not led into temptation the default setting of my heart is to run after temptation i don't know if that's you maybe you're different than me and my prayer must be centered around god give me what i need today to flee this help me jesus for i need you I need to rely on your provision for my daily bread. I need to rely on your provision for forgiveness and extending it to others. And I need to rely on your provision for keeping me from temptation. We are heard when our prayers are God-centered. And thinking about relying on his provision, my mind came to a story of a man from the 1800s named George Mueller, who exemplified and embodied a man who relied upon God's provision. George Mueller ran an orphanage and cared for over 120,000 orphans in his lifetime, traveled over 200,000 miles by ship to 42 different countries to proclaim Christ. And Mueller wrote this down in his journal one day. He said, one morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to buy food. And the children were standing, waiting for their morning meal. When Mueller said, children, you know we must be in time for school. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, dear father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. There was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker and no sooner had he left than there was a second knock at the door and it was the milkman. He announced that his cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage and he wanted to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. Oh, that we would rely upon the provision of God in prayer. The second thing we see here is that we are heard when our prayer is persistent. Jesus transitions here in verses 5 through 13 from giving an explicit teaching on prayer to telling parables illustrating it for us. And what we see here in these few verses is this picture of prayer as a persistent pursuit that we endeavor to do. Notice what he says. Can we all just affirm that a midnight caller is never a good thing? Can we just say, don't do that, right? I don't know about you, but when, when the doorbell was rang at my house growing up at midnight, it was never a good thing. The story never ended well. It was never, and then everybody was happy. That was never how it, how it was. In fact, uh, about a year ago, my wife and I had put our kids to bed. And we were getting in bed. It was about 12, at night, and the doorbell rings at my house, like, that's strange. The police shouldn't be here because I don't have teenage children. (laughs) At least that's how it was in my family. So I go to the door and I turn the light on and I look out and there's this woman standing on my front porch. And I start hollering at her like, hey, what do you want? I'm not opening my door to you. I don't know who you are. And she mumbles some things and I can't really understand her. So I turn around and I go and get a flashlight and I come back. And she's gone, like Harry Houdini, disappeared. She is nowhere to be seen. I open the door and like edge out as not to get jumped. And I'm looking, I'm like, where did she go? So I back up, don't turn your back on a bad situation. You back up, you close the door, deadbolt it, and I go back into my bedroom. And Janelle is cowering under the covers. Like, babe, what is going on? she goes, she's outside our window. (laughs) No. So I open the blinds. And I'm watching this woman try and break into my neighbor's house. I'm like, that's unique. So I get my flashlight again and I walk outside and I round the corner and she's gone. Just nowhere to be seen. So at this point, wisdom takes over and I text my neighbor who's a police officer. And I say, hey, Dan, can you help me look for somebody? So he brings out his police flashlight. Can we just say they got the market on awesome flashlights? Like the 20 million candle flashlight lights up the whole neighborhood. And we search everywhere, nowhere to be found. Dan goes home, I go home. It's about one o'clock in the morning at this point. Super great night for me. I go back in, again, deadbolt my door, walk back to my bedroom and I hear this noise. That's strange. There shouldn't be anybody outside of this hour. I go back and I get my little puny flashlight and I shine it at this girl. I'm like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Are you, are you sure you're Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm just trying I know these people I'm like you don't know them I know them you don't know them what are you trying to do at that moment I shined my flashlight she went walking off down the road walked back into my house do you want to know why I didn't open my door to that lady at 12 something in the morning she had no no business being in my house she wasn't part of my family she wasn't one of you there's no reason why she should be there And the story here that Jesus tells us is is a a story showing us a much different picture. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes in this moment and imagine the audience of Jesus' story. A midnight guest arrives, somebody that they know, and leaves you frantic to provide for their needs. The bro is hungry. He's been traveling all day and night, and he needs something to eat, and you have nothing to give him then imagine the frantic pace of which you run to your neighbor's home and knock, knock, knock at his door seeking to provide for their needs. What we see here in this short parable that Jesus teaches us in prayer is is this first component is that the first thing we see in persistent prayer is that we have to acknowledge our inadequacy. We have to acknowledge our inadequacy. The man could have simply made an excuse as to why he had nothing or he could have tried to solve the problem on his own, but he didn't. Notice what he does. Friend, lend me three loaves. I don't have anything to give. I need your help. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Can I ask? When you've been persistently prevailing in prayer, Have you stopped to acknowledge your inadequacy to solve it? Man, my kids are a mess. I got brothers that aren't followers of Jesus. I need help, Lord. But in that moment, I need to take a step back and say, Jesus, I can't solve this on my own. I have nothing but prayer to offer. And when I try to solve these things on my own, it always ends up a mess. Have you stopped in your times of prayer as you've persisted and acknowledged your inability to solve it? Not only that, but notice, verse seven, and he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The second thing we see of persistent prayers is that we, persistent prayers have no concern for propriety. Now, there's a word that Jesus uses here that probably you haven't used this week or in your lifetime. The word's impudence. Has anybody ever said that word? Nobody. 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 There's always one person that raises their hand. Nobody in this service. Praise Jesus. Nobody usually uses the word impudence. The word literally means shamelessness, immodesty, without concern for one's propriety or one's own dignity. The reality is is that persistent prayer causes us, causes me, causes you to pursue God in ways we haven't done before. It causes us to weep for those we are praying for. To desire more than anything to cast our shame and our propriety aside and come before the Lord, bear before him and say, God, please move. It drives us to greater depths in our relationship with him. That's what persistent prayer does. And as we read this parable, it would be easy for us to read this and assign to God the role of the hesitant homeowner, wouldn't it? Maybe your experience with God is that you've been knocking at a door and you hear him from within say, nope, I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to answer. That's not Jesus' point here in the parable. What he's declaring to us is that God isn't the hesitant homeowner. Rather, God, who cares about his children and delights in responding to them, is far greater than the hesitant homeowner who took his time in giving an answer. Our Father desires that we persist in our prayers. Donald Whitney, author of a book called Spiritual Disciplines, had this statement regarding persevering prayer. He said, Sometimes a failure to persist in prayer proves that we were not serious about our request in the first place. At other times, God wants us to persist in prayer in order to strengthen our faith in Him. Faith would never grow if all prayers were answered immediately. Persistent prayer tends to develop deeper gratitude as well. As the joy of a baby's birth is greater because of the months of anticipation, so is the joy of an answer to prayer after persistent praying. And as much as a generation that measures time in nanoseconds hates to admit its need for it, God crafts Christ-like patience in us when he requires persistence in prayer. Hear me. Don't give up. You can be seeking, asking, knocking. You can be pursuing. You can throw aside all shame and immodesty. You can come bare before the Lord and feel like it was for naught. And that is the greatest lie you could ever believe about prayer. Pursue him persistently in prayer. Remember, he's a good, gracious God who cares for you. The last thing we see is found in verses 9 through 13. It's simply this, is that I'm heard when my prayer is focused on God's goodness. Notice what he says. He says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an A, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Recognize and realize that our God-centered prayers enable us to persist in prayer, which helps us to see God's goodness in prayer. Our God-centered prayers enable us to persist in prayer. And that helps us to see God's goodness in prayer. And Jesus declares to us that as we persist, we continue asking, we continue seeking, and we continue knocking time and time and time again. And we rest content knowing that our answer will not always be yes. And we rest content knowing that whatever answer God gives, he does so because he is good. Do you see the strange story Jesus declares here? This is really fathering 101. If your son asks you for something to eat, don't give him a ball python or a scorpion. That's a bad idea. And Jesus declares to us that if our fathers, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you, cares for you, and is good, give you greater Gifts. Do you notice in verse 13 what the greatest gift that Jesus could ever give us is? Do you see it? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the greatest gift we could ever have as we persist in prayer. But, if I'm going to be honest with you, if I'm going to be transparent and let you into my heart a little bit, is that okay? I have been in spots of prayer, seasons of prayer, when I become discouraged, I become lazy, I become worn out by asking, seeking, and knocking. I've desired God to move and He hasn't. And man, I'm just done. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in seasons like that, where, man, I, I would much rather stop than continue to ask. And here's what I've realized as I've looked at Luke chapter 11 this week, is that discouraged disciples doubt God's goodness all the time. It's that in my moments of discouragement, I am quick to doubt God's goodness. And when my my family issues have risen to the top, and I've prayed for weeks, for months, or for years, and nothing has moved. When I'm tired and in a weary place, I am so quick to doubt God's goodness. That's my story. I wonder if it's yours as well. That in seasons of prevailing, persisting prayer, where you have asked and sought and knocked, you have pursued. You have made God the center of your prayer. You have sought his kingdom and you have persisted time and time again. I wonder if God's goodness is the farthest thing from your mind. I wonder who among us today has been prevailing in prayer for so long that you're discouraged and you doubt God's goodness. For those disciples in the room today who have been like me, or maybe are like me, Can I be transparent and lay before you this truth that God hasn't forgotten you? He hasn't ceased his care and provision for you. And yes, it's hard to prevail. It's hard to persist in prayer, but ultimately it's worth it. And in those seasons, when I've become discouraged and I've doubted God's goodness, I need to be reminded of the goodness of God that brought me to repentance of the goodness of God that sustains me and cares for me daily. and Don't forget that whatever prayer you have been persisting and prevailing in, don't forget that there is a Father who cares more deeply than you ever could about it. So this morning, are you a discouraged disciple who has doubted God's goodness? Has your time in prayer been more focused on presenting your needs before God and less focused on His holiness, His kingdom, and His goodness? Here in a minute, we're gonna do something that'll be a little bit different. This is how we'll end today's time. You didn't know church can be a participatory sport, so I'm excited that we're all on the same team together. Here in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up and get in groups of about three to five people. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to simply pray. To simply pray with each other. If you're a discouraged disciple, my hope is is that you would allow other disciples around you to pray for and encourage you if you've been persisting in prayer for a loved one or a situation or something else, would you allow another disciple to pray for and encourage you? And here's the ground rules. Some of you are freaking out. About 98.5% of you are freaking out. That's totally fine. The 1.5% that I can resonate with, just hear me, we're gonna be great. The other 98.5, here's the ground rules. When we stand, you get in groups of three to five. Don't wait for someone to pray. Just start praying. Open your heart to another disciple around you and allow us as a church to bear our burdens together. Oh, that we as a people would know and feel the beauty of having our burdens borne by the body of believers. Here's the rules. We'll stand three to five people, get in groups, share. If, there's, if you're discouraged, share that with another disciple. If you've been persisting in prayer and waiting for God to move, share that with another disciple and start praying. It's okay if everybody prays at once. Did you know God doesn't get overwhelmed at that? Isn't that weird? You could all pray at the same time and it'd be totally fine for him. So would you stand and in about 17 and a half seconds, find three to five people and start praying for one another.